Hi, I'm Rusty Komori, and this is Beyond the Lines on Think Tech Hawaii. I was the head coach of the Punahou Boys varsity tennis team for 22 years, and we were fortunate to win 22 consecutive state championships. This show is based on my books, Beyond the Lines and Beyond the Game, and it's about leadership, character, and creating a superior culture of excellence. My special guest today is the highly respected CEO of the United States Tennis Association. He is Lou Cher, and today we are going beyond tennis. Hey, Lou, welcome to Beyond the Lines. Rusty, thanks for having me. Great to see you again. Lou, I know that you graduated from Duke University and you also got your master's from Duke University. But can you tell me a bit about your background before becoming CEO? Well, you've clearly done uh, your research. You're going back over 30 years. Uh, but uh, after uh, grad school, I was determined to, uh, to work in sports. I just felt that if I was going to be successful professionally, um, I needed to work in an industry that I was passionate about, that uh, excited me, and sports certainly filled that bill. And so coming out of uh, Fuqua's business school, I was uh, able to join Wilson Sporting Goods, and I spent the first six years of my career uh, mostly in the working in the golf industry uh, in different marketing roles uh, with golf clubs, golf balls, both in the United States and in Japan. Uh, and enjoyed it tremendously. But what I learned uh, over that time was the novelty of working in sports started to wear off and the excitement of solving some of the business challenges uh, was much more um, energizing for me. And that opened me up to look at uh, other careers. So when I came back from Japan with Wilson, I, uh, I worked in consulting for uh, a few years with uh, a management consulting firm that did a lot of marketing uh, worked for, for leading brands, MTV, Best Buy, Nike, uh, among others. Uh, and then during the first dot-com wave, uh, I joined a um, an emerging dot-com that was creating a portal for college students. At that time, really, it was only uh, co-eds who were eligible to uh, get online. And so we, uh, we were in the media space, and I migrated from marketing into media sales. And that sort of led me into a career working later with Clear Channel in the radio and outdoor space, and then with uh, with Time Warner. Uh, ultimately, I went to work uh, with Madison Square Garden, overseeing their uh, sponsorship sales team, and then was recruited to uh, the USGA 12 years ago. And I've never looked back. It's been the most gratifying uh, opportunity I've ever had professionally. Well, Lou, I know also that when you were the chief revenue officer for the USTA, the U.S. Open revenue was at $216 million. And during your time, you grew it to over $400 million. And what, what did you focus on? What were some of the areas that you focused on to achieve that kind of growth? You know, I, I think it starts with our team. And we were able to uh, build out an extraordinary team uh, that started to leverage analytics and data much more uh, heavily than than perhaps we had done before. We got much more sophisticated with our ticket pricing, for example, and our approach to hospitality sales. Uh, we also recognized that we needed to leverage our global presence much more than we had historically. The U.S. Open primarily was 
US-based and even New York-based corporate sponsors uh, playing largely to the domestic crowd. But the Open, as you know, Rusty, is much more like a World Cup or an Olympic game. And the opportunity to start to leverage our exposure across the globe and bring in partners like Emirates Airline and uh, Lavazzi Coffee and Rolex, right? International brands that we're looking to tap into the global fandom associated with tennis, I think were huge drivers for us. Uh, and then we were able to renovate, transform really the venue, the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center, uh, a $750 million transformation of the venue, which unlocked incredible value for us and created great opportunities to deliver more value for fans, more value for sponsors, better experience for players, more points of sale, um, more concessions, more merch, uh, just uh, allowed us to, to really live out our, our greatest aspirations. So, Lou, I want to ask you about more about the U.S. Open. I mean, why is the U.S. Open super extra popular now and super extra successful? Yeah, you know, uh, we're, we're certainly seeing uh, a, a wave of, of increased interest in the sport of tennis. The U.S. Open has always been successful. Uh, we have a long history of selling almost all of our tickets every year. It's a global event, as I said. Unlike local sports teams, there's a championship happening uh, at the U.S. Open every year. The best players in the world are, are always there. Um, but I think what you're also seeing is a realization that tennis appeals like no other sport to men and women equally. Tennis, no matter what angle you look at it, whether it be participation, uh, viewership, attendance at events, splits right down the middle 50-50. The U.S. Open, as you know, Rusty, has offered equal prize money going back over 50 years. In fact, this year is the 50th anniversary of equal prize money. And I think the fact that we appeal equally to men and women, wives bring husbands, husbands bring wives, girlfriends, boyfriends, whatever the case, sons, daughters, gives us a huge opportunity to market to a larger audience, deliver uh, a greater experience. And at the same time, we're also seeing during the COVID, coming out of the COVID period, a huge uh, increase in tennis participation which is further sort of fueling what's going on. Tennis growth uh, has exceeded 30% over the past three years. Uh, and what we're excited about is that growth is coming exactly where you would hope to see that growth coming if your goal is to sustain the growth and make tennis look like America. 50% and higher growth rates amongst youth, 60% higher growth rates among Hispanic, Latino communities, and the Black African-American community is growing participation at 44 so all outpacing the national average. So we're incredibly excited uh, to see the resurgence in tennis play up to 23.6 million fans. Certainly that's reflective of the, uh, or, and contributing to the uh, increased excitement around the U.S. Well, Lou, you're exactly right about the tremendous growth of tennis, uh, not just nationally, but globally. And Lou, I want to ask you about Kids Day at the U.S. Open. I mean, how important and how cool is that that day for so many kids? Uh, Rusty, I, I appreciate you asking that question. Kids Day for us is really where our mission as an organization and our, our commercial aspirations sort of come together. And uh, unlike anywhere else that I've worked, um, our first obligation with the U.S. Open is to inspire. It's not to generate revenue. It's not to sell tickets. Our mission is to use the Open as a platform to inspire anyone that might want to pick up a racket to ultimately play. Most sport teams start with young players 
who played Little League baseball, football, basketball, whatever the case may be, and they hope to get them to become season ticket holders as adults. We're looking to convert attendees from ticket holders into players. And so Kids Day for us is amazing. We open the grounds to the public for free. We have programming on every court. Uh, families come on site. We had more than 35,000. It was a record this past year. Kids get to see the stars practice. They get to hit on courts. Uh, there's musical performances. It really is an amazing festival, but it's where our mission to grow the game is, is best exemplified uh, at the highest level. There is no other sports property I can think of that would make that sort of resource and investment available um, for free. And we do it because our mission comes first. And Lou, you know the latest studies about the health benefits of tennis. Can you share some of the big reasons why tennis is, is so great for everybody? Yeah, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. Uh, there have been a number of recent reports uh, in the past two or three years that have pointed to the longevity gains uh, as a result of participation in tennis. So first off, relative to a sedentary lifestyle, Playing tennis regularly will contribute almost 10 years to your longevity, 9.7 years uh, versus the sedentary lifestyle. And Rusty, that is almost five years more than any other sport or physical fitness activity. Swimming, running, cycling, things you think of doing purely for the fitness aspect, not necessarily for the fun and the, uh, and the social aspect, don't contribute to life expectancy in the way that tennis does. Uh, and it's a function of the recognition that there are health benefits and there are health benefits associated with emotional wellness and the nature of tennis as a social sport also contributes to the physical wellness uh, benefits. And so five years more than any other activity uh, that has been measured, soccer, again, swimming, running, uh, and, and the country is focused on health. Now, COVID has certainly caused many to start to think about health and wellness in a more serious way. And tennis is the ideal sport. It's just superior sport to any other sport out there for longevity uh, also has great great benefits for uh, uh, cardio. Lou I completely agree with you because I saw a bunch of those studies as well and Lou I want to specifically talk with you about the impact that the U.S. men's tennis pros is having globally I mean they had such a huge amazing uh performances at the recent Australian Open. I mean, Tommy Paul and Ben Shelton advanced really far in the draw. Uh, Jensen Brooksby beat Casper Ruud, who was number two, and then Mackie McDonald beat number one Nadal. And I was watching that match with Mackie, and Mackie was literally outplaying Nadal before Nadal injured his hip. What are your thoughts about the emergence of the U.S. men's tennis? You know, it's a, it's a different conversation, certainly, than, than uh, has been had over uh, the past decade or so. There have been many folks asking, you know, where's the next great American champion? Uh, where are the Americans on the, on the men's side? Obviously, we've been dominant on the women's side for many, many, many years. Uh, it's extraordinary to see. We currently have 10 of the top 50 players in the world are, uh, are Americans. We had more Americans in the main draw in Australia, 33 men and women uh, in the main draw. Uh, we had more players into the third round, 14 players into the third round. Three of the final eight were Americans uh, as well. And I think it's 
a function of a couple of things happening. One, a commitment that was made well before my time with the USPA to position ourselves in our player development organization as a resource to the private sector coaches and our sections and their resources, as opposed to focusing on a small number of players and trying to put all of our energy against those. We want to support the private sector coaches around the country and provide supplemental training opportunities, supplemental resources, nutrition, strength and conditioning, whatever the case may be, analytics. Uh, and what you're also seeing, Rusty, and, and I think you could speak to this from your past experience, each American having success starts to make that success seem more achievable for their peers. And so when Francis Tiafo made it to the semifinals at the U.S. Open, I think you saw other American players take note. And now all of a sudden, um, you know, getting to the top of the, uh, of the pyramid or the mountain doesn't seem quite so daunting because you've seen your colleagues and your teammates uh, achieve that success as well. And, and we're seeing similar success uh, with young players on the women's side as well. It's an exciting time for the pro game. Yeah, I mean, it, it really, truly is exciting. And yeah, I, now I want to specifically talk with you about the U.S. women's tennis. I mean, Serena Williams, Venus Williams, I mean, they set some really high standards um, with results and having a culture of excellence. Now, our our young women's players, Coco Goff, uh, Jessica Pegula, Danielle Collins, tell me about how fun the U.S. women's side is now. Yeah, look, um, we have nine of the top 50 players in the world are Americans on the uh, on the women's side. Uh, Jess Pagula has solidified herself really within the top five in the world. She's a threat to win any major that she plays in. She's a great, great player, uh, blossoming maybe a little later than uh, some others have, but she's having extraordinary success. Coco Goff is, uh, you know, is phenomenal, uh, and we're just waiting for her to break through. Uh, at a slam as well, but has all the ability in the world and and uh, and, and trains and, and holds herself to an amazing standard. There is another group there of young American players that are working their way through uh, the rankings and having extraordinary success. And and I, again, I think their their success breeds more success from their uh, from their peer group. Uh, and to the extent that we as the USTA can be helpful with their coaching. Uh, and, and provide additional resources. We're, we're there to do that. We want to be supportive. Uh, and many of these players, some of them have come through the college ranks as well, which is now a new outlet and training pathway for, uh, for great players. You're seeing players stay longer in the game and, and, and participating in college can be a great step. Danielle Collins is a great example of that. Uh, so we're very bullish on uh, the state of the game. We've always been strong on the women's side, and certainly Serena set a standard. She's the greatest tennis player of all time, uh, set an incredible standard along with her sister. But uh, there are many uh, that will follow in her legacy and, and diverse players as well. If you, if you really want to look at the Williams sister legacy, you will see um, young players of diverse backgrounds playing throughout the country. Yeah, it's, it's really exciting. I, I'm so happy that there's such a great balance actually on the men's and women's side again. And Lou, you have both of my books and you know, I talk about building that culture of excellence and that's exactly what you're about. You have a high standard of excellence in everything you do and in everything the USTA is doing. What, what are some things that stood out to you in the books? You know, Rusty, um, Looking through your books and your philosophy around leadership, you know, I, I, 
I, I saw many of the same um, qualities that, that you hear from, from great coaches. Uh, you mentioned my Duke background, whether it be uh, Coach K at Duke. We were fortunate to have Nick Saban come and speak to the USGA last year. And, and you hear a lot of the same things, right? It's, it's, it's a love for the preparation. It's a focus on the preparation, not the outcome. It's the it's the journey. It's relishing the details. It's it's recognizing your team and everyone's contribution to excellence. Right, you're only as good as as your weakest link. And you know, I think you identify many of these things, whether it be through the four P's or uh, or really focusing on uh, positive feedback and, and uh, identifying weaknesses and trying to address those. Uh, perhaps the one thing that stood out more to me. Than any other, which is something I, I often uh, discuss with with my team and our senior management team. Right, crisis breeds opportunity. You may have said it in a slightly different way, adversity, uh, but crisis breeds opportunity and gives you a chance to maybe rethink your business, to strengthen a relationship with a client, to go out of your way to support a player or support a fan in a way they wouldn't expect. Uh, and that's something we're we're always mindful of here at the USGA. Certainly, coming off of you know two and a half COVID years, uh, that you there you can look at things with a solutional orientation or a solutions mindset, uh, and look at uh, adversity, look at uh, crisis as, as an opportunity to uh, to develop your business and actually come out stronger than you went into a situation. Yeah, you know, you spot on right there, Lou. Spot on and. And Lou, you know, so many in, in recent times, um, mental health issues have been a, a big situation. And there's been a number of people that have come up to me saying that they read my books and it, it's actually helping them with their mental health issues. And it's not just with tennis players, but this, this is with every athlete in any sport, people in business, just people in life in general. What 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 are your thoughts about the mental health issue situation? You know, we we think about mental health uh, on a few different levels. So obviously, we're a competitive sport. We have athletes at the the most elite levels. Uh, mental health is a priority. Your, your your mental strength, your mental wellness is attached to your physical performance. You can't separate the two. But if we also step back and think about the USGA mission to grow the sport of tennis, the ideal sport for longevity and wellness and make it look like America, uh, we need to prioritize wellness. And that's both emotional wellness, mental wellness, along with physical. You can't differentiate between the two. So there's there's a big emphasis on making sure our staff have resources available to them to support their mental health, that we're providing work-life balance uh, that allows folks to participate uh, at their peak level when they're engaged in the uh, in the workplace and, and, and not burned out uh, and not distracted. That extends down to junior tournaments, many of which you were probably a part of, to make sure that we're, we're emphasizing mental health, looking out for triggers or, or, or symptoms of a mental health issue with young players on court, their behavior, their sportsmanship, those sorts of things can often indicate larger issues. So it's a priority. With our incoming president and board chair, Dr. Brian Hainline, who's currently the chief medical officer with the NCAA, he has prioritized mental health. He's also prioritized making tennis available to um, anyone with a disability. You know, 15% of the population 
in the U.S. Um, is, is sort of qualifies as having a disability. Tennis is an ideal sport for many uh, of those folks to uh, be active and social and participate in uh, in a sport. Uh, and, and so that will be an increasing focus for us as well. Lou, I love hearing your insights. And I, I have to bring up wheelchair tennis. I mean, tennis is a hard sport, but I have to say wheelchair tennis has to be a, at least a hundred times harder. I, I am massively impressed with every wheelchair tennis player. And you feature wheelchair tennis players at the U.S. Open, right? We feature wheelchair tennis players at the Open. We work with uh, wheelchair athletes at 12, 13, 14 years old. In fact, we just had a, a training block with the best 13, 14 year old juniors from around the country, both able-bodied and wheelchair athletes participating together uh, over a weekend on teams to, to further develop their, their skills. Um, wheelchair athletes are extraordinary. What they do, it, it's far harder. And if you watch the game, it's an incredibly entertaining game to watch and, and we want to support that. We were very proud this year at the US Open to have a million dollars in prize money available to our wheelchair athletes. We doubled the size of the wheelchair draw to have more athletes participate. And we introduced for the first time ever at a Grand Slam, uh, a junior division, a junior championship for wheelchair. So we will continue to make sure that tennis is accessible to all uh, and that tennis is able to look like America. And that includes wheelchair and other um, athletes playing adaptive tennis, maybe those with cognitive disabilities and the like. Lou, I want to ask you about pickleball. Um, pickleball is relatively a new sport that's been gaining in popularity. What are your thoughts about pickleball? Yeah, um, you know, it's, it's a terrific question. And, and first and foremost, what I will tell you is there are many aspects of pickleball that I think are great for tennis and the tennis uh, ecosystem. To the extent that uh, a teaching professional can, can earn a better living, to the extent that the pro shop, the snack bar, the tennis facility uh, can, can thrive and, and succeed more commercially. That lifts everybody up, and, and there's a benefit to that. As a health and wellness organization, if there are players that are aging out of tennis and pickleball gives them an opportunity to stay active and engaged and social and, and outdoors and, and move, right, that has health benefits that we're very supportive of. Uh, you know, the one challenge with pickleball for us has been that uh, despite the fact that we're growing at an extraordinarily fast rate. Certainly pickleball is growing incredibly quickly as well. Um, there aren't enough tennis courts in America and there are facilities that are making a decision. Hey, just on the optics, we've got eight tennis courts. What if we had six tennis courts? That could give us four pickleball courts. That feels balanced. But the reality is eight tennis courts wasn't enough to serve the demand for uh, tennis in the, uh, in the community and in that local market. And so making sure that these decisions are based on data, not just based on, on optics, uh, I think is really important because tennis has experienced extraordinary growth. More than 5 million players uh, were added to uh, our participation numbers over the past three years. And that was roughly the number of pickleball players that existed in the United States. And so we need to build more courts. We need to build more of both courts. Lou, you're exactly right. I, I know that we, I mean, throughout the U.S., we need more tennis courts and tennis courts and pickleball courts should be completely separated because it's two different sports. 
And and Lou, I want to ask you about the pipeline that uh, from beginner tennis all the way to potentially professional tennis. Sometimes in the past, there might have been, you know, areas throughout the growth process that some of the players would be or coaching might have been really great. And then but there's kind of holes in that pipeline process. What do you see as the pipeline process now? Yeah, you know, our, our player development organization, headed by uh, Mark Blackman, who's an extraordinary leader and is doing a terrific job, really exists to try to fill in the gaps that may be there in um, uh, the private sector uh, and, uh, and with our section resources. You know, we have 17 sections around the country. Those sections also have uh, development camps and regional camps and scouting camps and player identification camps, talent identification camps, all of which intended to sort of support the development of, of youth. Um, and, and depending on where you are in the country, those resources may be different. Uh, you may have shortages of high-performance coaches in certain areas of the country. You may not have enough indoor courts to get the court time you need uh, in certain parts of the country. So, so we're trying to provide support as necessary depending on the part of the country. And I think we've done a very nice job doing that over uh, really the past 10 or, or 13 years as we've really looked to provide more resources to the nation and to, to get more juniors. I know we often have here at our national campus in Orlando, the best 12-year-olds, the best 13-year-olds, the best 16-year-olds. We bring them together with their coaches, with their families to train against one another. And then they go back with some additional learning, some supplemental coaching. Again, we're here to be of service. Uh, to the, the private sector and, and to these aspiring players who are looking to uh, hopefully develop their game. We're also operating a, a developmental tour, the, the pro circuit, one of the 100 events that allow players really more in that transition space on the women's side, maybe as early as 14, on the men's side, probably 17, 18 plus, uh, to start to accumulate ranking points and play against uh, better players. And that's an important part of our mission as well, making sure that we're here to support and give play opportunities as well as supplemental coaching and resource opportunities to anyone that aspires to um, uh, develop into an elite professional. But player development isn't just for that small group that are on a professional pathway, right? Game improvement is one of the best ways to keep folks in the sport. And so you may, you may opt off that pathway at any point in time and go into high school tennis or collegiate tennis. Um, and, and still enjoy tennis for your life and want to improve and play competitively, but maybe your aspirations are a little different than, than uh, being number one in the world. Well, Lou, I'm, I'm so happy to hear about all that. And, and I agree with you. Martin Blackman is doing such a great yep. job for the USTA. I mean, we're so lucky to have him. And Lou, I want to ask you specifically as the CEO, as the leader, what kind of challenges do you deal with as leader? You know, for me, coming into this role, I've been with the organization for 12 years, so I'm, I'm very familiar uh, with our organization, with our business, with our culture. Uh, but coming in now into the CEO role within the past year, I'm very much focused on culture. You mentioned culture uh, at the outset of this conversation. I'm very much focused on our culture, making sure that we are a passionate, purpose-led organization that is focused on being of service to those who are ultimately delivering the game at the grassroots level around the country, pivoting to more of a health and wellness 
um, emphasis because I think that really does differentiate tennis from most any other sport that I can think of. Um, and, you know, I, I did spend a, a decent amount of time early on trying to create a structure, optimize our organizational structure in a way that would allow the talented individuals that we have across the organization to flourish, right? My job is, is really to identify, identify talent, provide clarity, uh, goals, uh, some accountability there, but also make sure that folks are empowered to be able to make decisions, um, to, to move the business forward, to act and be nimble. And so uh, we had some structural uh, impediments in that way. And, and I think we've, we've cleaned some of that up as well. But for me, it, it, it starts with culture. If our people are energized, if our people are passionate, if they're engaged to be of service, I think we can do great, great things. And then you start to figure out where you have to fill in as an organization, uh, what the structure needs to be to make sure that you can mobilize effectively. But uh, but there's no replacement for energizing the culture and building trust with all of the partners that we work with. We are a unique organization. We have many stakeholders, um, facility owners, coaches like yourself, uh, volunteers. Uh, we're not just a, a, a for-profit entity that can dictate sort of what happens top to bottom. We exist to be of service to those, which means they've got to trust us. They've got to confide in us. We've got to be able to share information uh, and be responsive uh, and respectful in that relationship to provide the resources that can allow someone at the grassroots level uh, to best grow the game and, and support our mission. Lou, you are a great leader with fantastic character, and I want to thank you for taking time to be on the show today. Well, it's a pleasure. Look, uh, to be uh, a leader, you need great people, and I'm, I'm very fortunate to work with incredibly talented, passionate folks that are committed to our mission, and it's a privilege for me to be in a position to try to support them, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you, uh, both about the, the state of the game and uh, and uh, your thoughts, share thoughts on leadership. Thanks, Lou. And thank Thanks. you for watching Beyond the Lines on Think Tech Hawaii. For more information, please visit rustykomori.com. And my books are available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. I hope that Lou and I will inspire you to create your own superior culture of excellence and to find your greatness and help others find theirs. Aloha. Thank you so much for watching Think Tech Hawaii. If you like what we do, please like us and click the subscribe button on YouTube and the follow button on Vimeo. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and donate to us at thinktechhawaii.com. Mahalo. Mm -hmm.